Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Tonight's reader, Nathaniel Rich, is a novelist and an essayist and has written for magazine, magazines such as the New York Review of Books, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Slate, and The Daily Beast. Um, he's written three books, uh, one nonfiction book, uh, San Francisco Noir, which we have next door in our annex. I don't think we have any up here, but if you haven't checked out our annex, you should go ch check it out. It's um, The City and Film Noir from 1940 to Present. It's a really, really, really cool book. Um, the novel The Mayor's Tongue, which um, if you've read it, you know, there's this sort of, or even maybe you haven't maybe you heard it, but there's a really cool, like, ongoing art project that maybe um, you could ask uh, Nathaniel about afterwards during the Q&A. Um, and uh, his newest uh, work, uh, Odds Against Tomorrow, which is what he'll be reading from now. Uh, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Nathaniel Rich. Thank you guys for coming out. Whoa, this is loud. Um, yeah, thank, thanks also to her. Uh, and uh, yeah, so this new book, Odds Against Tomorrow, it's about a mathematical genius named Mitchell Zucker who has a kind of, uh, has an inclination to obsess about worst case scenarios. And after college, he gets a, what's in some ways his dream job, but is also a nightmare job. Uh, working for a mysterious financial consultancy firm called Future World, where he has to predict worst-case scenarios in kind of exquisite, most exquisite possible detail. And so he becomes obsessed and uh, gets on the verge of having a nervous breakdown, essentially, uh, when an actual worst-case scenario hits New York, which is a hurricane called Tammy. Uh, which is a Category 3 storm that, that destroys, doesn't destroy the city, but it causes extensive flooding. Um, and then he becomes a kind of prophet, uh, a reluctant prophet, and he's also uniquely prepared to profit. And it's an awkward pun. I don't know any other way of, of putting it. But yeah, and, uh, and so I'm going to read, I think, just from the... Uh, I don't think I am going to read from the opening section, which is a, a kind of introduction to Mitchell. And this takes place um, back in college when he's just a, a budding math genius and 
um, social oddball, uh, like all good math geniuses. <clears throat> um, this chapter is called Brugada. The way other people fantasize about surprise inheritances, first glance love, and endless white imperial pastures, Mitchell dreamed of an erupting supervolcano that would bury North America under a foot of hot ash. He envisioned a nuclear exchange with China, a modern black plague, an asteroid tearing apart the crust of the earth, unleashing a new dark age. Such singularities didn't frighten him, he claimed. They offered freedom. They opened wormholes to a sublime realm of fantasy and chaos. Worst case scenarios, he said, were for him games of logic. How vast a nightmare could he imagine and to what level of precision? What was possible? What should we be afraid of? We knew that Mitchell's logic games line was a bluff. Worst case scenarios filled him with a very real terror. Late in the evening, he raced out of his bedroom in a panic, cheeks flushed, eyes haunted. He flipped on his desk lamp, pounded numbers into his calculator, and scrawled equations and odds ratios. It was a near nightly ritual. The next morning we'd find him there asleep, face down on his papers, his cheek ink stained with numbers like a prison tattoo. <laughs> Casualty. None of us, to be clear, lost any sleep over Mitchell's prophecies. We thought he was a little mad and a little depressed, even by UFC standards. We may have he may have understood numbers, but everyday life was too complex for him. We felt for him, we did. He'd had it tough from the start. His name was its own kind of worst-case scenario, a throwback to an era of Midwestern Anglo-Saxon gentility. Mitchell. Who named their child Mitchell? Parents with high aspirations and antiquated ideals. From his mother, a stout, fair Missourian, he inherited a twangy Ozark accent, flat russet hair that lay on his head like straw at the bottom of a pig pen, and a loathing for Overland Park, his native suburb. His father, a Hungarian refugee who owned housing projects in East Kansas City, contributed an eccentric, brooding manner and a depressive sense of humor. At first we wondered how Mitchell had been admitted, uh, but it soon became apparent that he was a mathematical zealot. During orientation, he wore a series of gray t-shirts bearing the faces of, quote, legendary statisticians, this written in a pompous cursive. <laughs> C.R. Rao, Leonardo Fibonacci, Andrei Kolmogorov, we hadn't heard of any of them. We suspected that Mitchell had silkscreened the shirts himself. If he wasn't a mathematical genius, something else was wrong with him. Put out of your mind, if you can, all the posters and magazine photographs and t-shirts bearing Mitchell Zucker's own face. Try to imagine the great man as a college student. You would not have recognized him then. Clean-shaven, round-faced, eyes dark and hooded, he was flagrantly rust belt. He looked like a swing voter. The old-fashioned crew cut, the neck reddish with razor bumps, and his retiring timid manner gave the impression of a perversely premature descent into middle age. Had he not been assigned to our dorm, we likely wouldn't have considered him more than a curiosity, like the chairman of the college Republicans who slept in his bow tie, or the sad, skinny girl who walked around campus cradling a ragged teddy bear. As might be expected, he was always with the computer, in the lab during the day, and at his desk in the common room at night. When friends visited, he'd participate amiably enough in the conversation for a few minutes, though before long he'd retreat to his screen, scanning the web for articles about artificial intelligence or manned sp space exploration or the lives of great mathematicians. I'd glance at him uneasily from time to time. Why wasn't he trying like the rest of us? 
His hunched back, expanding the fabric of a Peter L. Bernstein t-shirt, projected absolute indifference. Even when he was eating midnight takeout or watching cable news, he seemed lost in the higher questions. I came to know Mitchell casually over the years, but I can't say we had any particularly meaningful interaction until shortly before graduation. I'm referring to the Puget Sound earthquake. It's been written that Mitchell saw it coming, Seattle, that he tried to tell the world, but no one would listen to him. This, I feel confident insisting, is pure mythology. Mitchell was prepared for disaster, sure, but he had no better idea than anyone else what was going to unfold that Tuesday. I know because I was with him. It was a chilly autumn morning in Chicago. We were in Cobb Hall for Introduction to Russian Literature, AKA Sputnik for Nudniks. A fraction of the students were first years genuinely excited to read Tolstoy, but most were fourth years like Mitchell and me who needed the credit to graduate. On that terrible morning, shortly after we sat down, a murmur spread through the 400 seat auditorium, growing in intensity and volume. There followed a burst of laughter and then another. My first thought was that the professor, Zigo Olyesha, had canceled class, but the laughter was too harsh, too peculiar, and not at all mirthful. It was surprised, uncomfortable, even slightly deranged, the stifled sound a husband might make upon interrupting his wife and her lover, laughter as defense mechanism. In row after row, like the reverse of a wave at a baseball game, the students bent over their laps and activated their portables. I was reaching for my own when Professor Olyesha entered. I'm going to skip ahead a little. He begins giving a lecture about uh, Pushkin and not paying attention to what's going on in the crowd. Professor, someone finally shouts, there's been a huge earthquake in Seattle. Olyesha squinted, explain yourself. Seattle, the city's destroyed. Olyesha swept the hair out of his eye. I see. Feedback squealed over the speakers. I'm sorry to hear this. He called up the next slide, a portrait of the young poet, his cheeks furred with mutton chops. On June 6, 1799, Alexander Sergeyevich was born. Two dozen students rose loudly to their feet, gathering their laptops and bags, pushing their way out of the lecture hall. There was a tussle in the row ahead of us. A female student, her face heavily flushed, had become entangled with the boy sitting beside her. In her frustration, she shoved him. My brother lives in Seattle, she shrieked. She ran up the aisle sobbing. Oh yeah, she could no longer ignore the tumult. Red with rage, he pounded the lectern twice. For anyone who is serious about this course, I will conduct the rest of the lecture across the hall. He marched out. Nobody followed. Five seconds later, the portrait of Pushkin flickered off the giant screen. Someone was manipulating the remote control. The lights dimmed and a live television feed came on. The reporter's voice was loud and hoarse in the speakers. We saw incoherent flashes of flame, glass, metal, sea. No one spoke. We were trying to understand what we were watching. Beside me, Mitchell was shaking. He shielded his eyes like a child at a horror movie. I hardly need to rehearse for you the emotion of the day, the confusion and terror, but certain images I'll never forget. A naked child covered in ash, walking dazed through a mountain of rubble, a helicopter, its blade spinning frantically, sinking slowly into the sound, a convertible impaled on a stoplight, a dozen bodies running madly in every direction, silhouetted against a swelling wall of flame. The news reporter, no doubt in shock himself, stopped talking. It seems horrible now, but I remember laughing. It started in my stomach, a light ticklish sensation like a bubble rising, rising in my chest until it burst out in a wild guffaw. Nobody noticed. There were a lot of odd, uncontrolled noises in that lecture hall. The thought that made me laugh, though it's not at all funny in retrospect, was this. I felt that I'd entered Mitchell Zucker's head. 
Sitting in that hall as the smoke plumed on the screen, I felt as if I were eavesdropping on one of Mitchell's nightmares. I felt very close to him then. But when I glanced at Mitchell, I saw that he'd turned away. Something else had claimed his attention. I followed his gaze to the other end of the row, where an auburn-haired girl had collapsed awkwardly in her seat. Her head was twisted to one side, and her arms dangled crookedly beneath her. She was alone. In the commotion, no one else seemed to have noticed her. Mitchell shot past me, racing down the row, knocking his kneecaps against the chairs as he went. I followed, glancing back and forth between the images of the atrocity and the fainted girl. The juxtaposition was unsettling. It was as if somehow the monster on the screen had reached its talons into Cobb Hall and snatched one of us. When I caught up to Mitchell, he was frozen, hunched over the girl. She needs fresh air, I said. The sound of my voice, he spun around. She didn't faint, said Mitchell. How do you know? He pulled himself to one side so I could see the girl's face. I didn't recognize her. It's Elsa, said Mitchell. It's Elsa Bruner. Mitchell had first seen Elsa Bruner on a visit the previous October to the Student Health Service. Mitchell was on good terms with the people at SHS, a regular customer. They knew all his specials before he sat down. What would it be this week? A red, scaly patch of unknown provenance? Neck lump? Vague pain about the groin? The nurses welcomed him with patient smiles and made him wait until they had treated everyone with unimagined health concerns. That particular October morning, the doctor had called Elsa Bruner's name, and a pallid, slender, but seemingly healthful girl stood up. She met with the doctor for 10 minutes, and after signing a form at the front desk, went on her way. She was not especially attractive or even distinct, and Mitchell would have immediately forgotten her had he not seen her medical form when he checked out. Mitchell, the doctor had cheerily informed him, was merely exhausted and overstressed. He did not have Crohn's disease. <laughs> Elsa's medical file, thickly stuffed, was still lying on the counter, and Mitchell couldn't help but notice, printed in large caps on the top of the front page, the word Brugada. Other than several cardiologists in the medical school, Mitchell was undoubtedly the only person on campus who understood the meaning of this word. It's a heart disorder, he explained in the dining hall that night. It can strike you dead at any time, but otherwise you're completely healthy. That's the thing you made up. A girl at U of C has it, a second year. Her name's Elsa Bruner. She was at SHS this morning. Her heart stopped? No, she was probably there for a routine, a routine EKG. Is she hot? <laughs> Don't you get it? She can drop dead at any time. We gave prudent nods. So she's desperate. <laughs> Mitchell ignored us. Can you imagine, he said. One of his hands began absently to pull at his hair. She's a walking worst case scenario. How does she get out of bed? We murmured half-hearted words of concern, but it was too late. We'd lost him. He stood up, shaking his head, walked out of the dining hall into the night. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The paramedics come to take her out of the lecture hall that day. When we graduated in June, the panic raised by the Puget Sound earthquake had become part of us. It was slapped across our faces like a birthmark. We were dubbed Generation Seattle. Both the best and the worst suddenly seemed possible. Elsa Bruner, I learned, had dropped out and started a cooperative farm in Maine. Mitchell, like so much of our class after Seattle, moved to New York for a financial consulting job. We fell out of touch. I never saw him again, at least not in the flesh. I wish I could say that we'd been the best of friends, but today I consider myself lucky to have known him at what I now realize was a crucial stage in his development. To tell the truth, I was as shocked as everyone else when I found out what happened to Mitchell Zucker. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to take any questions. Um, 
I will say the, the book, one question I've gotten is about um, Sandy. Is this book, in my uh, response to Sandy, um, no. <laughs> I started writing it six years ago. Um, and I was actually finishing uh, edits of the final galley um, when, so the final copy edits essentially, when Sandy hit. And uh, I very selfishly and callously was, became concerned that I'd have to throw out the novel. Um, but fortunately, Sandy, as bad as it was, wasn't that bad. I haven't figured out a way to talk about this appropriately. Um, <laughs> like only a hundred people died. Yeah. Um, but 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 I didn't have to change it because, like everything else, the the actual description of the storm hitting New York, which is the cent the sort of central episode in the middle of the novel. Um, was derived from research I'd done into, um, you know, reports that had been written. You know, the Army Corps of Engineers, for instance, wrote a report uh, in the mid-90s, for instance, about what would happen if a, if a hurricane hit New York and laid it out in very uh, uh, incredible detail down to, like, there are images of, like, famous landmarks in New York where they draw, like, a water line to show you, like, where, how bad it will get. Um, and, you know, for all the kind of... Uh, the, the sort of the tone of the coverage of Sandy, um, th there was this always the sense that this was the most shocking thing, an unexpected thing that 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 could happen, and people weren't prepared. In fact, the you know the the government knew exactly what was going to happen. Scientists who've been studying this uh, knew exactly what would happen down to in, you know flood levels uh, in different parts of the city. Um, so that, like every other worst case scenario in the event in the in the novel, um, which Mitchell obsessively has to prepare and uh, and analyze, are all drawn from real things, real facts. Um, and so I, I I learned a lot about a lot of scary things. Brigada is a real thing, for instance. Um, but the novel is really about you know what? How do we you know we live in a time where it's never been easier to. To freak yourself out, to do, to go on Google and find out all of the ways that we're going to die, um, you know, bird flu, uh, Yellowstone supervolcano that's sort of set to go off and destroy uh, every living species on the planet, um, and uh, you know, nuclear war and all of this. And so the the question is, I think, how do we make sense of this? You know, how, what do we do with that information? Um, do we become overwhelmed, obsessed, and paranoid like Mitchell is at the beginning of the novel? Um, do we become like activists, uh, or do we just try to make a lot of money for our children and not worry about the rest of of the world? And and I think you know people resolve this question differently. But I wanted to get in, into that and uh, explore those things, and so that's sort of the tension at the heart of the novel. Question here. Well, I was going to sort of expanding what you were saying that. that uh are all the worst case scenarios that you detail uh, accurate to research that you have, or, or any of them exactly? There's one line in the book where Mitchell's in the middle of this fear conference, and uh, and his corporate client says, "Wait a minute! Like a volcano in New York? Like that's ridiculous!" And and he's like, "Well, you'd like to think that." It is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. But other than that, that's but that's Mitchell getting carried away. Other than that, everything is is real. And a lot of these things, like um, the Yellowstone, the Yellowstone supervolcanoes, especially, uh, 
Yeah, there's like always some people nodding. Like if you've if you've looked into this, you become obsessed at least briefly. So there's a, there's a super volcano underneath Yellowstone National Park. It's enormous. It's gone off twice. Uh, the first time to like about 2.1 million years ago, uh, and then again I think about 700,000 years ago. And each time it's destroyed all life on the planet, essentially almost all life on the planet. It's covered the sky with a kind of cloud of dust that's blotted out the sun for two years. So, um, you know, we know that's going to happen again. <laughs> and by, depending on how you do the calculations, you could say we're due, right? But does that mean, but this is geological time, so it's like, is it going to happen tomorrow? Is it going to happen in 100,000 years from now, or a million years from now? Or probably sooner than that, but uh, 300,000 years from now? Um, and you can go on the USGS website and find, um, they have a, uh, like a ticker where it's reading the latest measurements. Um, <laughs> And there are people who do, like me briefly, uh, who like go on there and it's like, oh shit, like, it, like it's starting to edge up a little bit and there's like, oh, okay, yeah. And then you have like people tweeting about the latest fluctuations and, um, you know, and you could spend your life doing that. And, and I think, you know, part of what the book's about is, is that is like the kind of convenience of obsession. Right? Like it's now so easy to obsess and so easy to um, go down these like internet wormholes. Uh, and I think we've all had moments of doing that. Um, but there's something, there, it's a kind of like emotional procrastination. It's like instead of dealing with, you know, maybe more personal, intimate crises that are under your control, like, uh, you know, trying to fix your relationship with your parents or your children or your husband or wife, it's a lot easier just to like go freak out about the Yellowstone supervolcano, um, but there's a, also a kind of dishonesty or, or a lie that you're telling yourself. So then how were you personally, like, affected researching and writing the book? Did you, do you think that you were more or less neurotic about these things? <laughs> I, I have a lot more gray hairs since the last time I was in the store. Um, but, I, you know, I, beca I became sort of obsessed for brief moments. But, but ultimately, I think w the effect is a, it has a kind of focusing effect because once you realize all of the things that you can be uh, afraid of, you, it sort of all becomes noise, and I think it focuses you to think about the things that you actually have control over, you know, and not these more abstract um, things that you can't control. Um, so that's one response. But there are little things that you know. I take some precautions. <laughs> take some precautions. I don't go. I have. Uh, I don't go through airport security, for instance. Well, I go through security, but I get frisked. I don't go through the machines. That's a little crazy. I just like getting frisked. Yeah, yeah. It's like a way to have like intimacy with a stranger, like really easily. Yeah. I was going to ask. So there are two kinds of disasters that come up. Um, there's the man-made disasters, like war or you know terrorism, and then there's the natural disasters, and and the plot sort of goes with the natural disasters, um, with the flood and the earthquake. But when co like calculating all the horrors that can happen, war comes up a lot. So, what do you think the difference is when we're like evaluating our fear or like thinking about terror and disasters? What do you think the difference is ultimately between those two kinds of things? Well, I think there's something. Um, yeah, a lot of the scenarios that, that Mitchell investigated in the early part of the book when he's a consultant um, 
are yeah there are man-made disasters as well as yeah like I just started getting freaked out about China war with China yeah nuclear exchanges um, yeah like a nuclear exchange would be the equivalent of like a Yellowstone supervolcano going off and yeah there's something I think there's something more horrific about man-made disasters or like war or terrorism because you know when there's a terrorist attack you know of course you saw in Boston where like oddly I was reading that day, the day of the like the shootout, I was on lockdown. Um, but uh, which wasn't the worst, real worst case scenario, like being st stuck in Boston, couldn't leave. Um, no offense to Boston Bostonians in the room, uh, um, but but yeah, no. But I think there's something uh, horrific about. Uh, so so yeah, after after like a terrorist attack, of course the first the first thing that people say is, oh, there was like a dark skinned Arab man seen on the crime. You know, you heard that someone foreign. Right, and then you learn that it's an American citizen. Um, but I think there's a real, there's that inclination to say, well, it's someone outside of our tribe. But the truth of the matter is, and I think what, what that's our in response to is the fact that, well, if it's us, like it's a human being that did it, we're like doing this to ourself. And I think an interesting way that I, our view of natural disasters have changed, particularly things like hurricanes, maybe earthquakes a little less, although maybe with fracking different, is that we're starting to feel like maybe we're causing these things too. You know, that where, like, of course, hurricanes existed before, uh, always, but, but maybe with the, what we're, the way we're transforming the ecology of the planet, that we are now culpable in some way. And I think there's something especially horrific and creepy about that. Um, that's now, so like, the, the horror of the man made disaster has kind of infected natural disasters too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I would say, I mean, at every, one thing I was really conscious of is, is sort of at every place where the novel could go in that kind of Hollywood disaster direction, I very forcefully pushed it away. So, like, in those disaster films, you know, you always, everything's happening on, like, a huge scale. So it's always, like... Beijing, it's gone. Tokyo, it's gone. Like London, it's out. We don't have London. London's, we've lost London. You know, um, and that kind of like macro and things exploding. Like the Eiffel Tower is exploding. Like the Chrysler Building is exploding. Um, the White House. Uh, that kind of thing. I mean, there's something really fun about that, and there's something fun about disasters in general. And I think that's a, that's a big part of the book. There's a thrill of just like going into these crazy scenarios, and there's something cathartic about it because it's a sort of safe way to um, sort of exercise your fears, and then at the end you feel this kind of relief that like, oh, well, things aren't so bad yet, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Um, but I, yeah, I purposefully wanted to avoid that stuff, so it's like when there's actually a disaster occurs in the novel, it's, it, it goes very close to Mitchell's perspective. And so you don't see any, you don't really see, because you know, what's the real experience of being in a catastrophe? You don't see buildings exploding and stuff, or in a storm, you don't see like, the Statue of Liberty, you know, going underwater or something, you see your own apartment and your boarded up window and you look out a little sliver of space in the between the boards and you see a little sliver of like Third Avenue in the case of Mitchell. And then when he's in the storm, it's sort of surrounded by fog most of the time or he's in these small spaces. He escapes by canoe. Um, but he's always sort of 
he can't really see anything around the bend and and um, and then ultimately he's sort of walking in darkness you know and so you never get that kind of Hollywood treatment and I think you know as fun as as those movies are I wanted to go beyond the sort of shock value of that and get into these other themes and kind of go more deeply into um, catastrophe, you know, and, and the trauma of it. And I, th I thought the way to do that was to really personalize it um, instead of abstracting it through the sort of devices that you would see in a, in a film. Yes? And you're looking for scenarios. Did you rely on Planeteer or some of the other um, I'm not familiar with Planeteer, but I, I mean, I, I did some research at the library, but what's sort of amazing is now all of this stuff you can find on Google, like you can now find all of these great, there's this whole literature of disaster journals, for instance, academic journals, with names like Food Safety Magazine, that's one of my favorites, it's like really creepy. Um, you'll never like eat out again. Uh, or uh, Emerging Infectious Diseases, it's a really good one. Um, you know, Tsunamis and Earthquakes Monthly or whatever it is. and. Uh, uh, so all of this stuff is available. So it's not just like Wikipedia. Like I didn't really use Wikipedia or things like that, but it's you can you can find really advanced, sort of sophisticated analysis of of every crazy thing easily. And that's and that's sort of what the novel's about too. It's like we if you have any inclination, you know, even if you don't have an inclination, you can't read your email or or like your Twitter feed or Facebook or whatever without finding stories about the new avian flu that's like now spreading outside of China's borders, you know, or the Boston terrorists, or um, nuclear North Korea, like that's just in the last week, right? It's always something new. Um, scary abductions and kidnappings and stuff. And so, but if you have any inclination to look for it, you could really go crazy. And so it's, um, I needed to have a certain level of information in the novel to replicate the experience, I think, of living in this culture where we're just inundated, for lack of a better verb, with with information. Um, so I had to do the research, but then at a certain point the novel moves away from that and moves hopefully beyond that. Um, but I think you need some level of rigor to really talk about these, these issues. Yeah. Last question, yeah. Um, well, one of the things you talk about is that you can obsess on these things and then therefore divert yourself from your own life. But what about this, the flip side of, you know, the sort of like scandal fatigue? Like, we don't care anymore that politicians have screwed around on the Appalachian Trail. You know, yeah. do you think we're facing a crisis fatigue, and what are the implications of that? Yeah, I think, we, you, yeah, we are. I mean, you know, if you look at, I mean, the things that sell now are uh, celebrity stuff and fear. You know, if you look at, at what's popular on, like, Yahoo News, I still have a Yahoo account. Um, <laughs> major social stigma. Uh, but yeah, like, you see what's like the most popular stuff that's been aggregated, and it's like, it's like celebrity stuff and fear. So like, fear is big business, and, and if you watch cable news at all, you know, you can, you can see that, and it becomes the, the, the jargon and the, the language used to describe crises has become inflated to like comical levels, right? Like, it's never just um, a snowstorm, it's a snowpocalypse. <laughs> um, you know, and it's it's like it's never just a storm. It's like a potential hurricane or like tropical storm situation and emerging. You know, and there's a real reason for that. It's high stakes. It's dramatic. It it sells. 
but yeah, I think what happens over time is you get numb. I think we've all experienced that, right? You get pretty, you get cold to it. So then it creates a vicious cycle where then you have to inflate the language even further. Um, and where I don't know where that stops. Like, it, and, it, and it, it's easy to become cynical, but then at the same time, you can't ignore certain facts. Um, so it, yeah, you get into this territory, which is what the novel's about, is like, where do you draw the line? What do you expose, where do you open yourself to? And, and where do you block things out? And I think that's probably, there's no real correct answer, but it's, it's, uh, it's what we all, it's sort of what the, our culture is right now. We all have to sort of figure that out for ourselves or just tune it out completely and, and sort of step away from it. But that's really hard to do, you know? Um, so those are the things I wanted to write about in the book. Great. Well, thank you all for coming out. I appreciate it. All right. So um, just give us a few minutes. We're just going to clean up and set up, and uh, Nathaniel will uh, sign your books for you. Good. All right. So one, one last round of applause. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.